Welcome to this British Academy podcast on confronting COVID-19, nudge and sludge. I'm Hitan Shah, Chief Executive of the British Academy. We're the UK's National Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences. This event, part of our Shape the Future programme, which brings together researchers to examine a range of issues around COVID-19, took place on 10th June 2020. I was delighted to be joined by the eminent political scientist and fellow of the Academy, Professor Cass Sunstein, to discuss nudge theory in the context of a global pandemic and what behavioural barriers, or sludge, need to be removed if we're expected to nudge our way out of a crisis. Cass, um, for those who uh, in the audience today who may be a bit less familiar with the concept of nudge, can you say a little bit more to explain it, uh, especially in the context of COVID-19? Great. So um, the basic idea is that um, sometimes it's helpful to have uh, an intervention that preserves freedom of choice, but that helps us get where we want to go. So a GPS device is a nudge, a reminder saying, for example, there's an event starting at a certain time given five minutes in advance, that's a nudge. Something saying a bill is due or you have a doctor's appointment, that's a nudge. A warning is definitely a nudge. A bit of information, say about calories connected with your lunch, that's that's a nudge. Uh, if you're automatically enrolled in a program, it might be a pension program, it might be some other program that your employer, employer just puts you in, but you can get out if you want to. Those things are nudges. Reminders of social norms are nudges. So if the norm is mask wearing, you're told that, that's a nudge. So the idea is these are interventions that preserve freedom of choice, and that's crucial. People can go their own way if they don't like what the GPS suggests, but they do do a little steering of people in a direction which we hope is going to be good for them. And if it isn't, then we should change it. Uh, there's nudging all over the world right now in connection with COVID-19. In fact, this has been a worldwide um, effort. Um, there might be a nudge to wear a mask, which involves something like a clear communication that says, wear a mask, the life you save may be your own. Or wear a mask, the life you save may be your elderly neighbors. That's a nudge. These things in stores now, all over the world which show uh, the two meters or the one and a half meter distance people should maintain that might be on the floor of a store uh, that's emphatically a nudge new zealand maybe wins olympic gold new zealand i don't think wins a lot of olympic gold but they might win olympic gold for nudging 2020 that's not all they're doing but they've done a ton of things including uh, nudges that say such things as united which is a base signaling a social norm, and be kind, which is a very uh, simple way of saying treat others with respect, but also don't get other people sick. So this must have been a fascinating time to see different governments using behavioural insights in different ways. I mean, can you share your thoughts about how different countries have incorporated social science and behavioural insight alongside uh, medical or more traditional scientific advice uh, in responding to the pandemic? Yes, so uh, thank you for that. There's a shared understanding in diverse countries uh, that our species Homo sapiens has many incredibly impressive attributes uh, compared to 
Neanderthals and Homo erectus who went extinct. We have some really good attributes. Uh, but we have some things that can get us into trouble. For example, we tend to be present biased. That is, today and tomorrow really matter. The long term, maybe not so much. We tend to be unrealistically optimistic, which can be a good thing. We tend to be overconfident. And uh, many governments have people, sometimes really at the top, who are aware of these, uh, let's say, imperfections. And they've taken steps to try to counteract them. And I, I think that in Australia and New Zealand, both of which have flourishing uh, behavioral science communities, including people in, in the government, um, to try to counteract unrealistic optimism by signaling the, the seriousness of the threat has been a uh, prime idea. Uh, another idea in behavioral science is if you want people to do something, kind of the first thing to do is make it easy rather than kind of shoving them or pushing them, figuring out, figuring out why aren't they doing it anyway and removing the obstacle. So it may be a, a simple obstacle, like you can't find a mask, or if you're staying at home, uh, the economic situation you face is going to be uh, horrific. And governments have been responding to that. Again, Australia and New Zealand have done extremely well. In the United States, my own country, Recently, in particular, states and localities have been alert to the keen importance of social norms and have signaled not, you're going to be fined if you don't wear a mask or you're going to be fined if you open your store. But this is what everyone else is doing. Don't you want to join them and be a member of your community? Uh, these are small things, uh, but in aggregate, they can produce very large effects. Not only that, they have. So in nations, Taiwan's another example where they're really alert to the behavioral framework. We can say a little bit about what it concretely entails, um, but they've been very alert to it in Taiwan and some of their good results are a direct outgrowth of um, uh, a behavior change, smart behavior change. I mean, I certainly noticed the issue around social norms uh, before we went into lockdown really quite early on at the, in the pandemic. I saw somebody wearing a mask on the train. Think I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, gosh, that's a bit strange. You know, I wouldn't do that. Um, whereas now, of course, a few months on, uh, this is now much more of a social norm and much easier to do. So uh, I think we can all relate to that. How, how, how do you see uh, the, the, the kind of role of nudging within I suppose the armory of the policymaker, especially when they're currently faced with something that is so life and death as a pandemic, isn't their instinctive response to reach for regulation and law? Uh, because this matters so much, we couldn't just leave it to something as sort of amorphous as a nudge. Uh, but uh, how does it all fit together? Okay, uh, think if you would of policies that familiarly involve mandates like don't commit violent crime or don't sexually harass people. Um, some of the mandates may be accompanied by criminal penalties. Some may be accompanied by civil penalties. Uh, in the context of violent crime and sexual harassment, we know particularly for the latter, that if all we relied on was the mandate itself, we'd have, you know, a crazy amount, as we sometimes have had, of sexual harassment and violent crime. So in both of those contexts, if we want to reduce the incidence, we need to complement the 
prohibition and enforcement of the prohibition with nudges. Now they can take the form of, you know, pretty stern warnings, or they can take the form of efforts to inculcate values of a certain kind, which hopefully will be um, part of a democratic process rather than a top-down imposition. But some of the progress we've seen in communities that have seen big decreases in violent crime and sexual harassment, it's been driven largely by nudges, where people are given a framework, uh, maybe by reference to social norm, maybe by reference to just uh, triggering a sense of uh, conscience and what a good person does, uh, mm -hmm. maybe by a sense of triggering a sense of empathy with people who could be hurt. And these are not, you do this and you're gonna have to pay a fine or you might face a jail sentence. They're instead, uh, you know, this is what we do here. And that notion of what we do here, this is what we do here is just, uh, consistent with what you said about masks, where in you know the easily remembered past, if you wore a mask, it was a signal, I'm sick, or I'm a terrified person. Now, it doesn't have any either of those signals. It's just that is what one does. Mm -hmm. So for um, uh, nations that are drawn to mandates and bans, and surely they have an important role to play, uh, to complement them with nudges is a really good idea. And in places like, um, you know, Denmark and the United States right now, and there are countless others which are opening up a bit, uh, and so the prohibitions are weakened, to have simultaneous nudges is essential. And the word nudges is kind of, it's a small word, it's just something little, but we have cases where nudges are producing you know, thousands or even millions of changes in behavior. And that's, that's exactly what the world needs with respect to public health today. Absolutely. And I can see that the cumulative effect of some of these small changes may be very, very major. One of the things that was uh, certainly within the UK, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether the public would uh, stay in lockdown or whether they would tire of it and suffer some kind of behavioral fatigue um, and in retrospect it looks as if public compliance has been better than perhaps many people had predicted so what do you think we could learn from you know th this episode I think the word behavioral fatigue uh, is one to be very cautious about uh, think of brushing your teeth where Many people do it every day and they don't feel I'm tired of brushing my teeth. They feel that's what they do. Or of uh, engaging in uh, eating behavior. <laughs> it's an elaborate word for lunch, breakfast, dinner. And people don't get tired. Maybe they do. But generally lunch, breakfast, dinner is a, a habit. So what I think is important for COVID-19 is to notice that the flip side of behavioral fatigue is uh, habit creation. And, and that's, I think, a more robust phenomenon than behavioral fatigue if the underlying behavior is one that it is um, relatively easy to, to make customary in your life. And the idea of wearing a mask every day, like the idea of bringing out an umbrella when it's raining, it's kind of a, it's raining umbrella. That's what the mask is. That doesn't seem fatiguing. That just seems either 
what one does or um, safe. It's raining a lot. So I, I wouldn't worry terribly much about behavioral fatigue. If a nation is closed down in a way that doesn't fit with the data and is causing severe economic stress, that's self-evidently a problem. It's not behavioral fatigue. It's how am I going to get through my year? A different point. Yeah, and I suppose that this, I mean, I think the point about habits is very powerful. And it, it, I suppose the interesting question will be how this has played out with different kinds of groups. So uh, for somebody like me that can relatively easily work from home, uh, I've created new habits and this is working pretty well. Uh, but if you're stuck, I suppose, in a relatively small flat with no outdoor space and you've got young children, it, it may not be possible to create a habit and therefore that, that, that becomes more difficult. Yes, and it's kind of incumbent on nations uh, to attend to the distributional point, which you're signaling, where the reason some groups may face more hardship than others could be purely economic. Um, it could be just uh, physical, small space, or it could be kids. And these aren't things that can be solved on a dime, but the problems can be reduced um, pretty quickly uh, through financial support, through uh, accommodations of various kinds that help people with kids. And that is, you know, there's an underlying unfairness that's, uh, very severe, but there's also uh, a spotlight on the unfairness, which creates an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has certainly uh, revealed again a whole series of inequalities, which uh, were for some people lying beneath the surface. What, what surprised you most about human behavior during this period? The extraordinary speed of adaptation by people of wildly diverse situations. So we've seen, and this is inspiring, we've seen people who are, you know, kind of self-important and wealthy, who are not poor, but they're staying at home and they're not going into work, who, who about whom it might have been said, good luck with that. And there are people who are really struggling, single parents who were staying at home and doing an amazing job with their family and often with their work from home. There are emergency room doctors. I have some friends who are emergency room doctors who are not saying at the height, of, this is at the height of the pandemic and it's pretty bad now, but it was worse where I am a couple of months ago who were saying, we are rearing to go. This is what we train for. Let's go. These are emergency room doctors who are surrounded by really six people. The attitude is this, what, this is what we're on the planet for. And it wasn't with despair, it was with a kind of uh, passion for saving people. And to see that the diversity of people who are uh, doing that, it's you know something about the human spirit, but in terms of predictions from behavioral science, uh, the, the diversity and rapidity of it uh, is a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Now, turning to the second part of the, the kind of name we've given our session, we talked about nudge and sludge. Sludge might be a term that uh, fewer of uh, the people who've tuned in today may be familiar with in, in this context of uh, behavioral psychology, uh, but it's increasingly being used. So can you explain the term and give us some examples? 
Okay, so the basic idea is that human life is pervaded by frictions and paperwork burdens or administrative burdens, which are imposed sometimes in order to torment people and drive them crazy. And that is a successful project sometimes. Sometimes they're imposed by self-interest. So if you want to subscribe to something online, sometimes that's really easy. But to unsubscribe, you have to navigate sludge meaning you have to talk to somebody, you have to answer 13 emails, you have to say something about exactly why you don't want to subscribe anymore. And by the time that question has been asked four times, you might say, okay, I'll keep subscribing. It's not that bad. That's sludge. So think of it as uh, friction. It can be waiting time. So very recently in my country, voting in Georgia required four to seven hours of waiting time. That's terrible sludge. It might be waiting time on the phone. It might be a requirement of an interview. It might be that you have to uh, fill out some forms to get an occupational license. It may be you have to deal with the authorities in a way that is Kafkaesque in order to avoid something bad happening to you, which might be a fine or a really not good encounter with the criminal authorities. So think of it as a full universe of frictions that sometimes come from the telephone company, sometimes come from a utility company, sometimes come from uh, public officials. And there's too much of it. Right. And you've spoken positively about how some public officials around the world have been working hard to get rid of sludge. Uh, I mean, can you say a bit about what you're seeing? I mean, in particular, it'd be interesting to hear UK examples, if you have any, but uh, any from around the world of success in de-sludgifying. Okay, so what we've seen is an unnamed war on sludge. And I'd want to study the UK situation carefully before you know calling out examples but i'll give you the feel of examples and i'm sure there are uk equivalents where to get certain kinds of benefits people have to go in for an interview that's eliminated hospitals and doctors have reporting and paperwork requirements in order to do things that are being waived um, there are requirements that poor people have to meet sometimes every month, sometimes every six months in order to get benefits to which they are normally entitled. Those are being reduced. There are benefits that governments are providing specifically in the context of uh, COVID-19 that would ordinarily have a sludge associated with it, maybe an application requirement. And some countries, including Canada prominently, and in one context, the United States, or we have North American examples, they don't make you apply at all. They just send the stuff to you. It's going to be in your bank account because the government knows you're entitled to it. And it, it may seem like a small thing, but in a period in which people's health and economic situations are extremely fragile, the uh, burdens imposed by sludge in terms of the costs are really high compared to, let's say, six months ago. And a somewhat more subtle and I think you know, uh, more uh, crucial point uh, all over the world is that all of us have limited mental bandwidth. Uh, our ability to do the 50 things that we're supposed to do today, we just don't have that. Maybe we'll get through 21 of them. In a period of pandemic, uh, for many people, the 
cognitive bandwidth is just even less. They're dealing with their kids, they're dealing with economic fear, they're dealing with their employer. Some have had an increase in bandwidth, but many have had less. Insofar as we're talking about populations that are elderly, that have a mental health issue, uh, that are dealing with economic uh, terribleness, poor people, the bandwidth problem is very, very severe. And then sludge can be literally a killer. It can be metaphorically a killer, but literally a killer. And governments in a kind of uh, bottom-up way, this isn't, so far as I'm aware, in any country, a directive from a prime minister or the president, though I hope that's coming in a hurry. Uh, if anyone listening can make that happen, uh, that would be uh, a gift uh, to, to help make it happen. Uh, a sludge reduction directive from the prime minister or the president would be a terrific thing to uh, see. It saves time, which is the most precious thing that people have. It gives them access to things often that can turn their lives around. And th th this is a period in which we need, you know, we need more of that. I mean, there's an interesting uh, point that rises from that. Um, the the, the de-sludging agenda sounds similar to the casual ear, although I think it's different to the kind of deregulatory agenda. Uh, I think they're motivated probably by slightly different things and might take you to slightly different places, but one could imagine a government confusing the two. Do you just want to clarify the distinction between them or where they do overlap? Right. So the deregulatory agenda, I think, on reflection, is something we should be ambivalent about. Uh, not negative, but ambivalent about. I'll give you some data that is, will capture the point. The Trump administration has had the low, imposed the lowest costs of any administration annually on the kind of standard accounting of any administration for which we have numbers. It only goes back to about 2000, but that's 20 years. So that's good. Uh, the Trump administration also has had the lowest benefits from regulation of any administration going back 20 years. And if you subtract benefits minus costs, that's, which is what you want, that's the net benefits, the record of the Trump administration has, has, has been the worst. And the deregulatory action you know, deserves approval insofar as it's cost reduction. That can spur economic growth. It can take costs away from consumers and workers. So not negative, ambivalent about the deregulatory agenda. But if we're talking about taking away things that make air clean or that make workers safe or that get resources in the hands of people who A, need them and B, deserve them, then that's not good deregulation. To make particulate matter is a very bad air pollutant. To increase levels of air particulate matter in the air is to kill significant numbers of people. And that actually is interacting right now in a not ideal way with, um, with COVID-19. So deregulatory agenda, yes, when the costs of regulation exceed the benefits. More regulation, yes, when the benefits of regulation exceed the costs. In the context of sludge, we could, for just simplicity, define it as excessive frictions, in which case we want to get rid of all excessive frictions. And so that would be a good agenda. Or we could define it more neutrally as frictions, and then the ones we'd want to get rid of are the ones that are excessive, uh, which wouldn't be a deregulatory agenda. It would be a sludge audit agenda, 
So what we're seeing mostly in informal ways, but it's just starting in companies as well as in governments, is more formal sludge audits, where there's an accounting, how much sludge do we impose, and is it in the end justified by the legitimate goals that sometimes animate sludge? like making sure people who get benefits are eligible for them, or keeping good records to make sure that a program is working. Those are good reasons for sludge. But do we have 200% uh, of the amount of sludge we need to accomplish those goals? If so, we can cut the sludge in half. Thank you. We've got about 300 people tuned in at the moment. So for those regulatory geeks amongst you, I hope that you enjoyed that exposition. Um, Regulatory, we call them regulatory aficionados. Geeks would be a kind of nudge not to be one. Sure. Aficionados isn't the best. Regulatory heroes, that's what we call you. <laughs> Cass, since you co-authored Nudge in 2008, one of the big changes has been the huge rise in social media. Uh, and so what's the impact of that in terms of the communications side of Nudge and Sludge? It's a great question. So some of the uh, social media platforms are very good at sludge reduction. Uh, Facebook has an initiative about helping people on their birthday to give money to charities and helping them encourage their friends. And I've participated in this and it's almost sludge free. It's so easy. And the Facebook designers are obviously alert to the behavioral finding that if you make something easy, sometimes the results will be spectacularly large in size. So some social media providers are using nudges uh, constructively for to benefit both donors and donees. Uh, the recent controversy over Twitter's signaling that a tweet from President Trump uh, was, I think the word potent was potentially misleading. It's just a nudge. So what Twitter did was to say, to get the facts on this issue, uh, go here. It's just a nudge, no ban. So we're seeing very agile uses of social media architecture to um, nudge people in various directions. Some of these aren't, you know, clearly in the public interest. So insofar as people are nudged to see things that uh, are basically louder echoes of their own voice, that's probably not the best thing for democracy. It may be worse than that. And if people are being nudged, and this isn't social media platforms, but it's a lot of website uh, designers, are uh, um, using behavioral principles in a fiendish way. Uh, it's called dark patterns. Uh, automatically to enroll people in programs that they didn't clearly consent to, or uh, pressing them repeatedly to buy a product that they have no interest in, knowing that if they keep being pressed on it, they'll eventually give up, or using social norms in a way that is in the economic self-interest of the seller and not clearly in any way in the interest of the buyer. And those aren't things, so far as I'm aware, that the social media providers are doing themselves, though they are doing some things that are very much in their interest to, to attract clicks. But they are nudging people, the, what I'm talking about, nudging people to, uh, to part with their money. And that's not so good, especially not good, is automatic enrollment. 
in things that mean people will be for years potentially uh, giving their credit card to someone for some service that they don't use at all. I think we need, all of us need to think much harder about the social media platforms responsibilities. And this is a cliche. I'm going to try to make it a little more concrete, uh, both to promote public health and to make democracies work better. And for the community standards that are used by, say, Twitter and Facebook to be revisited, let's say, tonight, like in an hour, to think about uh, about nudges and sludge and how it's affecting public health, including through misleading or false statements, uh, that, that, that would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, thanks, that's fascinating. And turning back to something you raised earlier, which is the speed of change we saw in human behavior as being something that you, you found surprising. I mean, thinking about other big global challenges we face, I mean, notably climate change, what could we learn from how behavior has changed in the pandemic and what that might mean for what we could do for other global challenges? It's a great question. And one way in, um, okay, so in the White House where I worked, uh, the president had a phrase, uh, admire the problem. And he said, you know, meanwhile, back at the problem, meaning think of solutions. I'm going to admire the problem for a moment. The, and then I'll try to be back, meanwhile, back at the problem. So for um, climate change, it's different from the pandemic in the sense that the sense of immediate threat for many people just isn't there. So as we recently saw in Paris, if there's a tax, even a relatively modest tax, people might think, what are you doing here? Whereas if people are told something much more uh, you know, severe, you have to stay home, uh, people say, okay. And that's because death and illness are concentrate the mind and climate change has more abstraction. Okay, uh, so that's, the, that's a difference. Uh, one thing that recent data shows is working in Germany that's behavioral is that companies, I think, you know, uh, uh, with the something like uh, approval or uh, spurring of uh, Chancellor Merkel, they are automatically enrolling people in green energy, solar and wind. And people can opt out if they want. If they want to use coal, they can. And in some places, coal is cheaper. But automatically, you're in the climate-friendly uh, energy source. And the recent data shows that's been a spectacularly effective policy that people all over this large and important country are in green energy, just because that's been the nudge. I think they think uh, it's just not worth it to opt out, or I'd feel like a creep if I opted out. In any case, the policy is working. Not every country can do that, but lots and lots of countries can. Uh, for climate change, the basic idea out of that little story from Germany is if you can make the climate friendly options easy, then people are more likely to choose them. If it's confusing or hard to figure out how to do something that makes your um, climate imprint smaller, then people are busy, they're not going to do it. So we need to think hard about that. And I think with special reference to the large entities like power plants or automobiles manufacturers who are the uh, main contributors. Uh, for automobiles, consumers are uh, 
acting in response to nudges like fuel economy information in a way that's not enough, but that's something. And that is helping spur a more climate friendly fleet. And that's a great example about uh, the, the opting in, opting out of uh, your energy supplier, as it were. I mean, it emulates what is probably the best known uh, nudge of all, which is around pension schemes uh, and getting people enrolled in and having to opt out if they want to opt out. So that's a fascinating one I hadn't come across. Mm. But a final question for me before we take uh, the, the Q&A coming in uh, from our virtual audience is, um, Looking a little bit ahead, it's clear that we're going to face a whole series of new challenges as we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, the economy looms large. In the UK, we're likely to face uh, a rise in unemployment, something we've not seen really for a very long time, uh, but also changes in the patterns that we live and work. Uh, what's your advice to leaders when they're starting to think about how to apply a behavioral science lens to the future challenges that are coming down the track. What should they be thinking about? That's a large as well as great question. So I have two ideas. Uh, one is in deciding what policy to choose, uh, to think in the most disciplined possible way about the consequences for human welfare. Now that's an abstraction. I want to make a plea for cost benefit analysis. There aren't uh, banners under which people march saying cost-benefit analysis now, but it's the best way we have of being really careful about what the human impacts of our policies are. So the basic idea is if you're deciding whether to go to one phase or another to get the most information about the incremental health problem, if there is one, and the incremental economic gain, and to just be measuring it versus alternatives. And if this isn't bringing smiles to people's faces, I can say in the U US government, when I worked there, when things went well rather than less well, it was because this happened. And it resulted in you know, a lot of lives saved or a lot of economic distress being averted. So the staring at numbers I'm not going to write a book called Staring at Numbers because no one would buy it, but that would be advice for public officials. Try to stare at some numbers. The second is to keep a little framework in mind, and this is an adaptation of a framework used by the UK's amazing behavioral insights team, and the framework is called FEAST. Uh, I'll tell you the EAST part of the framework, which is easy, make it easy, make it attractive, if there's signage or if there's an opportunity, make it attractive. S is social, use social norms, kind of try to help nudge social norms in a certain direction. And T is timely, where the idea is if you tell people, you know, at night, keep six feet apart when you go to the grocery store, good luck with that. If you could tell them when they go to the grocery store, keep six feet apart. That's the right time to do it. My little amendment is, is the word F for feast, and F stands for fun. And in New Zealand, the prime minister has been amazingly good at injecting an element of fun into the COVID-19 response. Who would have thought that was possible? But she said, you know, we're going to have a big lockdown, but the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy are being exempted. They're getting an exemption. And she did it with a kind of delight and wit that helped people see they're in a situation that isn't great, 
it's scary, but we're all going to get over it and we're going to be laughing all the way. I just learned, at least we're going to be laughing as much as we can. If people are dying, you're not going to laugh. But as much as we can, we're going to retain that human capacity. I just learned yesterday that in Thailand, uh, the word fun, is, uh, not, I'm sorry, in Taiwan, in not, Thailand, I hope, Taiwan, I know, the word fun is part of the official framework for how to deal with the problem. And uh, the FEAST framework is designed to say to public officials, human need beings need, especially in the context of a serious challenge, to enjoy their lives. And, uh, you know, people are doing that. Thank you. That's a great insight. I'm going to turn to questions now that we've been getting in from the audience. Uh, the first one is from Justin Parkinson uh, from the BBC, who's asked, uh, that the government here has recently changed its main coronavirus message uh, in England from stay at home to stay alert. Uh, and that's been criticized as vague. So does it work as a nudge? I hope they're rethinking stay alert. So I have a great deal of admiration for many people in the UK government and the behavioral insights team are my friends and colleagues. Uh, stay alert, the question is completely right. It's too vague. Um, it's like, uh, you know, be smart. It, 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 if, to help people, you need to give them something like a GPS. Stay at home is that. It's not indicated anymore, but we need some equivalent to that. Would you have a suggestion for something better? Well, I, I have a direction, not a specific, because I'm not sure what's meant by stay alert. Um, if it's, if the, if the, the advice has to be actionable and stay alert, maybe there's a certain percentage of the population that is just going through life like a dog I once knew, meaning not alert, a lovely dog, but not alert, alert dog. But if you're doing that, probably being told to stay alert isn't going to have a big impact. Um, something like um, uh, uh, that would be stay safe might have might have enough connotations. Sorry about that. That's the UK government on the line. <laughs> the UK government is saying, "Why are you objecting to our slogan?" Uh, so the the, uh, the basic idea is something that maps on to something that people already has in their mind that is concrete. So stay safe is better than stay alert or be kind. The, the New Zealand idea is better than stay alert because it calls up as, as some particular associations. I want to know if I were working there, what do you, what do you want people to do actually? And then you'll get some answers that can lead to a verbal formulation. Very good, thank you. We've got a few questions which are around this kind of cluster of an idea that uh, how do we hold the nudges to account uh, if we're not aware about what they're doing? And th this is mentioned in a couple of different contexts. Well, one person asking about in autocratic societies, uh, another person is asking about how political parties are using nudges. So could you talk about that sort of in, in that sort of broad idea? Great. So for governments, we need a Bill of Rights for nudging. And uh, I actually have studied public opinion in 17 countries, including the UK and 
the United States and Russia and China and South Korea and Denmark, uh, France. And there's something surprisingly like a consensus, not quite that, but close to that, on what rights uh, operate as a check on nudges. And what emerges from this is if the government has illicit or self-serving motives, it's violating kind of the morality that all governments should have to respect. If the government is um, nudging people in a way that's inconsistent with their interests or values, people rebel against that in diverse countries. If the government is manipulating people, for example, with subliminal advertising, uh, people don't like that very much. If, if the government is showing religious or racial favoritism through nudges, or even party favoritism for nudges, people don't like that either. And what's uh, maybe just short of thrilling in this data is that in countries that have very different systems, we see a lot of agreement about what's not acceptable. And to kind of import that as a series of constraints on what governments can do. Transparency also, and maybe an opportunity for public input before a nudge is um, chosen is a really good idea. Uh, in, the, in the Obama administration, we did that. And not because we were you know, anything other than pragmatic, which is we might not know what we're doing, or, or people might hate it. And both of those would be, you know, good to know. And, uh, and maybe people have ideas about something that's better or about why this wouldn't be a good initiative. And plenty of times we got learned from the public that uh, we weren't going in the best direction and they helped us devise a better nudge. I'll give you a couple examples, uh, fuel economy labels and calorie labels. The public was extremely informative about exactly what it made sense to do. That, that's really interesting because uh, in a sense, sometimes the criticism of nudges, it's a very technocratic approach. Uh, you know, it doesn't involve the people. Uh, it's really just a bunch of officials deciding what's good for you. But the sort of examples you're giving there are about some kind of partnership with, with the public, but then designing a kind of policy instrument that, that flows from public will in some way. I mean, there's a lot there. So if, if I were to identify the most technocratic approaches, I think uh, I'd put high on the list mercury regulation, ozone regulation, and regulation chemicals that are uh, potentially dangerous and carcinogenic. That these are extremely technocratic judgments that entail uh, use of expertise and it's not really accessible to people who aren't trained or not easily accessible. So I, I wouldn't put nudges at the top of the list of the technocratic. So if you go to, there used to be a time when there were these things called airports. I don't know if you remember them. And actually these big metal things would go up in the air and you'd all sit close to each other. But uh, if you go to Heathrow, um, there are nudges everywhere telling you, you know, where the bathroom is and how to get to your gate and uh, where the rental cars are. And uh, there might even be things on, I don't I haven't been to Heathrow very recently, so I don't remember if there are little steps that kind of direct you step-by-step step how to walk to various places. Many airports have those things. They're really helpful. They're not technocratic. 
we, we've got a couple of questions around how we get governments to take up a, a nudge approach. So uh, somebody's asked, you know, it's clear that there are some governments that have already really adopted this, but how, how do we get the others who are not really thinking about this to take it on? And another related question, which was very nicely phrased, which is, uh, how, how do we nudge towards sludge audits? Uh, how do we make those easy, as it were? Okay, great. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure how many of you with whom we're speaking have connections with France, but France, you know, is a country with such a, the words fail, uh, of such an inspiring history in so many ways, and just nudging isn't coming there, and they could do so much on the cheap to help their people, and we're just not seeing much. I'm not, not sure why. Uh, the, the best uh, inspiration for doing nudging is a track record of success. So when I were in the US government in 2009, if I said, you know, I co-authored this book on nudging, let's do that. I think people would have said, well, we have a place you should go and it isn't Washington DC, not hell, but back to, your, back to the private sector. Don't talk to us about abstractions. Talk to us about problems. So if the question is how can you help um, people save for retirement, the example you gave, or if the question is what can we do about climate change, or what can we do about uh, H1N1? That was something I was engaged in that has some parallels to COVID-19. They're the behavioral science. It's relevant to all of those. So if it's problem-centered rather than theory-centered, and if it's uh, driven by you know, uh, things that actually can be shown to work. Uh, David Halpern in the UK has been extremely successful in drawing attention to uh, solving problems rather than to academic theories. Um, we've seen a burst of activity in the last months and also in the last years with respect to use of nudges. Uh, I, th I think in a way it's just going to happen as people who know how to do this work uh, end up in government and old enough to be hired. Some of them are being trained in you know, economics departments or psychology departments or somewhere. Uh, but in terms of uh, getting it there in countries that aren't there to get somebody excited. And if it's the prime minister, fantastic. If it's uh, someone who's a minister, that's also really good. Great. We've got uh, a series of questions, I think, around, uh, in a sense, connecting back to this question of democracy and nudges. Um, so uh, one is about how, how do we make nudging more democratic? Uh, you talked a little bit about that, but it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that more. And then somebody else had also asked, um, does nudging work equally well when people know that they're being nudged? The, the second one is great. And we have data which shows so far that every tested nudge is actually at least as effective when people are, know they're being nudged and sometimes more effective when people know they're being nudged. And I, I think uh, on reflection, that's not that's surprising because nudges aren't hidden. If you're given a calorie label, um, you're not, it's not a secret. 
you go to the uh, the subway or the McDonald's and there's calorie labels there. So you know you're being nudged. Or if you buy a car and there's a label on it that tells you something about the fuel economy or a refrigerator that tells you about the energy efficiency, you're, you don't not know you're being nudged. In cases in which there's kind of very clear disclosure that people are being nudged, uh, people either don't care or they think, oh, there must be a really good reason for it. I'll, I'll do it. So if people are told, you know, the reason you've been auto enrolled in a pension plan is that this will uh, ensure a larger accumulation of savings when you're older, um, unless you don't want that, if you opt out, then you'll have more money now and less money then. And we've, we're, we're making it so it's really easy for you to save, save for retirement, but you don't have to. Uh, that one particularly, to my knowledge, hasn't been tested in a rigorous way, but it's very possible to think people think, oh, I better do this. It seems like a really good idea. Uh, so to give people transparency about their being nudged is important. It's respectful. And it's part of the underlying ethics of nudging, which is preserving freedom of choice, clarity that they're being nudged, then their freedom of choice isn't full. GPS nudges you, and that doesn't make it less effective. If anything, it makes it more effective. So too with a sign on a beach that says, uh, warning, you probably shouldn't swim today because the waves are, are pretty terrible. In terms of the democratic, that's a really great question. And I, I mentioned calorie labels. So I'll say a little bit about that. Uh, that actually came, the requirement came from a law which was enacted by our legislature. And then the question was how to implement it. And there are ways to implement calorie labels that had, can have you know, more or less aggressiveness and more or less range. So do you include movie theaters? The law isn't clear on that. And the way the US government tried to figure it out is it said, here's our proposal. Here are five alternatives. I'm making that number five up, by the way. I think it was more than that. Five alternative things in terms of presentation or in terms of scope. And we want to hear your comments. And it was a lengthy process of um, obtaining comments. And many of the comments suggested the proposal wasn't a good one. And some of them were completely convincing. And so we ended up doing something different. And What's true for democracy and nudging is, I hope, uh, going to be even more true for democracy and mandates, because mandates are the more threatening because they don't allow people to opt out. So there's a, you know, an openness to a nudge, which creates a safeguard against government mistake or, or corruption or whatever, self-interest. Um, but since nudges are impactful, we need these safeguards of democratic engagement. I think it's a powerful point you make, which is sometimes forgotten, which is that, that the nudging architecture is all about allowing people choice. Uh, I mean, it nudges, but it does. Uh, I mean, I think the, the formal term you used originally was liberal paternalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's got a liberal element as well as a paternal element. And we must yeah, the, the, the kind of American term is libertarian paternalism, because liberal kind of means left <laughs> of center. So uh, think of it as freedom preserving. And, and that's, you know, humility, that yeah. government officials need to be uh, alert to the fact that they may get it wrong. 
Now, a fascinating question that's come in uh, and a difficult one is, what does nudging have to say about the way that certain public debates are getting more and more polarized at the moment? I mean, we see this in particular in the way that social media spheres operate, uh, but we can see that, I think, uh, particularly in the US at the moment. Uh, does, does nudge give any insight on that? Well, behavioral science does. So I'll tell you a little experiment I was involved in a few years ago, where we got a bunch of people who were left of center to talk about an international treaty on climate change and to talk with each other about whether there should be one. And we asked them to record their views privately and anonymously before they talked to each other and privately, privately and anonymously after they talked to each other. And we also did that for people who are right of center that they only talked with like-minded others. But in both groups, there was diversity going in on an international treaty to control climate change. And what happened was the people who were left of center ended up more extreme, more confident, and more unified. They went whoosh to the left on climate change. On um, the right, there was some diversity before they started to talk. In their anonymous post-deliberation statements of opinion, they went whoosh to the right. They all thought that the international agreement, crazy idea. They all thought that, it was unanimous, and it wasn't going in. So social media were observing uh, the Colorado experiment. There, there are often, not always by any means, but often echo chambers by which people are sorting themselves into like-minded groups and they end up more extreme. Now, Facebook on its newsfeed can aggravate that problem or reduce that problem. It can encourage people just to hear their own voice or it can nudge people to hear diversity of voices. Um, regrettably, Facebook uh, uh, hasn't gone in the, let's say, uh, ideal direction from the standpoint of democracy, though they've been worrying over the problem, just they've been admiring the problem, but meanwhile back at the problem. So there, there can be nudges that would help by having you know, some clarity in your newsfeed about the diverse voices that are, that are out there, or something that would give you a sense that what you're reading right now is actually false. And Facebook has taken some steps in that direction, so has Twitter. But uh, let's say more can be done. Great. We're getting close to the end of our time, but uh, a kind of final set of questions, I think, uh, cluster around this idea of how do we make sure that some of the successes we've had around nudging during this early stage of the pandemic continue through as we now start emerging out of lockdown. Uh, I mean, a, a couple of people make the point that uh, actually that there are more people who've now had the infection, but we seem to be kind of relaxing almost at the same time. I'm sure that's not, you know, the, the different pictures in different countries, but what, what's your prognosis of how we should be using nudge in this, what might be quite a dangerous period? Yes, there's suggestive data. It's not, you know, uh, airtight yet but it's suggestive data that if you tell people, if you take precautions, uh, you will reduce risk to yourself, that's helpful. But if you tell them if you take precautions, you're less likely to endanger your friends and neighbors, that has a bigger impact. So New Zealand has been masterful at uh, giving people sense that, you know, sensible precautions, let's call them, 
are a way to ensure that you yourself are not responsible for the illness of another member of the human species. And there are ways of doing this that are, you know, uh, unpleasantly directive and sanctimonious uh, to, to do it instead with a sense of uh, common endeavor and good cheer. Um, uh, the kind of uh, record of success in multiple countries over the last months suggests that's something to build on. Thank you very much. Well, look, Cass, we will end there. I'd really like to thank you for all of the time that you've uh, given us today. It's been fascinating insights uh, on how we can respond to the pandemic uh, in general, but we've strayed well beyond that as well to think about uh, you know, the role in democracy, social media, uh, and um, uh, preventing kind of more authoritarian uses of nudge as well. So it's been fantastic. I'd like to thank our virtual audience as well, most of whom have stayed with us through the course of an hour. Uh, and of course, we've been recording this, so many more people will be able to hear it, uh, hear it uh, as we go into the future. Do For those of you who are still with us, do keep an eye on the British Academy website uh, and our social media. You'll be able to see more from our Shape the Future work, uh, which is responding to COVID and our future events. Uh, but for now, I'd like to thank all of you and thank you again, Cass. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.